Hello and welcome to Landings with a Flare, the podcast where we supplement and support flight training. This is Captain Teresa. This episode will be a pilot ground school lesson in the format of a guided discussion. This conversation was recorded on the audio platform called Clubhouse. You will likely hear some variation in audio quality as speakers tune in from around the world. Many of our ground school lessons include handouts, which you can find along with other resources in the podcast show notes. They are also on our website, landingswithaflare.com. We hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Welcome aboard. Welcome, everyone. We are here to talk about wind. We've already spoken about global winds. We did that last week. So now we're going to speak more about all the other types of winds. There are things called global winds, seasonal winds, periodic, local. It kind of depends on who you ask. But let's start by talking about how winds get their names. What is one of the most common ways for a wind to get its name? Destiny J. From their origin. Yes, exactly. So a northeasterly wind comes from the northeast. And a sea breeze comes from the sea and a land breeze comes from the land. Those are the basic naming conventions of winds. Now, global winds we already have discussed in detail. And then there are also winds called seasonal winds. A perfect example of a seasonal wind is the monsoons in India, because during certain seasons of the year, the winds are all moving in one direction. And then for the rest of the year, the winds move very consistently in the other direction. Those are called seasonal winds. There are also winds called periodic winds. Those can be something called sea breezes and land breezes, or valley breezes and mountain breezes. Let's go ahead and talk about those. For those who are following, that is going to start on page five on the handout. First of all, let's talk about the sea breeze versus the land breeze. Would anyone like to explain how those are formed? Philip? So, first of all, one has to know that the sea and the land have different capabilities how fast the surface can rise in temperature but also decrease in temperature and also it depends on the daytime so the thing is that the water itself can heat up and cool down pretty slow and vice versa is the land so during the day the land heats therefore you have rising air so where air goes away there has to be some new air coming from somewhere and that's why you have air coming from the sea towards the land because the land has uplifting air. Then you have uh, sea breeze. And at night, it's the other way around because the water surface has saved so much warmth during the day and gives the warm temperatures away like really slowly during night. So therefore, you have the opposite wind effect at night. And then during those transition times, you may have nearly no breeze at all. Excellent. That was a good explanation. So in the morning, we tend to get something called a sea breeze, which means the wind is coming from the water to the land. Like Philip said, the reason for that is because the water takes a lot longer to heat and cool than the land. We say that water has a high heat capacity. When the sun first rises in the morning, 
the land heats up quickly, but the water is still cold. Because the land heated up quickly, that means that there's a lower density air, which starts rising, so that creates a lower pressure. And in nature, everything likes to equalize out. So the higher pressure air from the water rushes in to fill that low pressure. And then you get a cycle going, this convective cycle. Let's talk a little bit more about the water. Why does water take so long to heat up, so much longer than a thin layer of land? Destiny J. Because it mixes together the waves, the currents. Exactly. That's the primary reason. Think about the thin layer of water on the surface being heated up by the sun. As soon as that's heated up, that's going to start mixing in with the other water again. And then there's going to be more cold water on top. So because the water is mixing and mixing, it takes a whole lot more to heat up than just that thin layer. There are other reasons as well. For example, water can often reflect the sunlight. Another reason, I believe it actually has to do slightly with the molecular composition of the water, how it also needs more energy to change temperature. But the big one has to do with the mixing, which is, as Destiny J said, during the morning again, the land heats up faster than the water. So the cold, dense air from the water rushes in to fill the void of the rising air over the land. And then the opposite happens at night. When the sun sets, the land gets cold pretty quickly. It cools off. It was just that thin layer of land that, that was heated up in the first place. But the water has been mixing in and accumulating heat all day. And so now the water retains its heat a lot longer. And then the reverse flow happens. Now the air is rising. The warm air is rising off the water. Cold air is sinking on the land, creating a high pressure. And then the air again flows from the high to the low because everything equalizes out in nature. That covers sea breezes and land breezes. Is there anything anyone wants to add? Astro. I guess we we have encountered this situation because we have an even amount of heating between the land and the water causes one of them to be high and one of them to be low. That is a good point. Back when we spoke about the root cause of all weather, we talked about how the root cause is really unequal heating of the Earth's surface. Okay, we are going to move on to mountain breezes and valley breezes. Really, it's a similar concept as a sea breeze and a land breeze, and so I won't go into as much detail. But think of the valley breeze, which happens in the morning, as a little bit like a sea breeze, except instead of wind coming from water, wind is coming from a valley up a mountain or up a high sloping region. The reason that that happens often has to do with how the sun heats up the tops of the mountains more than the valley gets heat. It partly has to do with the angle that the sun is hitting the sloping sides of the mountains. The mountaintops act a little bit like the land in the previous scenario. They heat up sooner, then the air starts rising, the warm air. And then the colder air starts filling in that void, that low-pressure void that they created, and then you get your cycles there. So that is called a valley breeze coming from the valley, like most winds are named from their origin. And then you've got, at night, 
the opposite happens. The mountaintops actually cool off faster than the valley. And so now the cold air sinks down into the valley. I want to tell you that there are often other terms used to describe this as well. If you've heard the terms anabatic or katabatic, referring to winds, sometimes the valley breeze is called an anabatic wind, and the mountain breeze, the descending breeze, is called a katabatic wind. Let's talk just a little bit more about katabatic winds. Sometimes it's just sort of a plain old mountain breeze, but there are specific winds in the world that are very famous on most of the different continents called katabatic winds that can be very strong, powerful winds in certain regions of the world. Does anyone want to speak about katabatic winds? Astro? When we talk about the anabatic winds, correct? Yes, anabatic and or katabatic. Okay, when we talk about the anabatic winds, we talk about upslope winds driven by a warmer surface. And when we talk about katabatic winds, we talk about downslope winds created when the mountain surface is colder than the surrounding air. That is accurate. And then there are some famous katabatic winds in the world. Philip, do you have comments? I would say Mistral, for example. Yes, that is an example of one. Can you tell us a little bit about that for people who haven't heard about that before? Yeah, that's a local wind system in France. Depending on the time of the year, you may have to expect strong winds. During my flight training, I was there and I had headwinds of uh, 40 knots landing a piston engine aircraft. That is actually pretty common over there associated with a lot of turbulence, but it's close to ground. So you have also meandering winds uh, vertically. And also its intensity is also forced by a valley situation. And that's why it gets even stronger than one may suggest before. So that's a typical uh, weather situation there in France. That is a great example. Katabatic, that word, is based on the Greek word for descending. Katabatic winds are the winds that come down from mountains. I believe that every continent has katabatic winds. I know that the famous one in California is called the Santa Anas. And there are several others. I think there's one called the Oroshi in Japan, the Bora in the Adriatic. There are all these famous winds. And it has to do with the density of the air. It can often come from, like we said, the typical valley breeze, mountain breeze situation. But sometimes it's maybe a plateau with a lot of ice and snow on the top. And then that cools off the air that's near the surface, and that air gets such density that pretty soon gravity starts pulling it down the sides of the plateau or down the surface. So those katabatic winds are basically heavy, cold, dense descending air descending downward. And then as they descend down, they often heat up more because of what we spoke about earlier with something called adiabatic warming. It's just good to know what katabatic winds are. And then katabatic winds are sometimes confused with something that's similar but not exact, and that is called the rain shadow effect. This explains how two areas of the world that are very close together can have such different vegetation and climates. Rain shadow effect can be seen in every part of the world, every continent at least, 
And this is the one where if you have a high mountain or a hill that perhaps is very green on one side and then maybe dry and desert-like on the other side. One place that you can see this is how California is very green, but if you go to the other side of the mountains in Nevada, it's like a desert. So how does this happen? It has to do with something called the adiabatic cooling and warming that we spoke about before. If there's a strong wind and it hits the side of a mountain, the wind is forced to rise because it doesn't have anywhere else to go. So it's forced to start rising up the mountain. As it rises up the mountain, it's going to cool off because of this thing called adiabatic cooling. It means the air is expanding and so it gets colder as it rises up in altitude. The air is getting colder and colder and pretty soon it is going to get to its point of saturation. As it cools off, it won't be able to hold all the moisture in it. It's going to get saturated and then you're going to see clouds and rain. And that's why it's often going to be fairly green and lush on that side of the mountain. But now, at some point, the wind is going to go over the top of the mountain. And remember that it already rained out most of the moisture. So now you have very dry air coming across the side of the mountain. If you remember before, we said that the average lapse rate of moist air is about two degrees Celsius per thousand feet. So as the air was rising up the mountain, it was cooling about two degrees per thousand feet. But now that it's dry and it's rushing down the other side, its lapse rate has changed to three degrees Celsius per thousand feet as it warms up because the change in moisture has changed that. So the dry air is going to change at a more rapid pace and it's going to heat up more and more. On the example that I have, on the picture that I have on the bottom of page four, this is from an FAA advisory circular. The example shows that the temperature at the beginning of the mountain and the windward side was 15 degrees Celsius, but by the time it comes down the back side of the mountain called the leeward side, it's around 23 degrees Celsius. Again, the moist air uh, lapse rate is about 2 degrees Celsius per thousand feet on average. And then the dry air is usually about 3 degrees Celsius per thousand feet. So the dry air coming down the back heats up a lot and it's very dry and it causes desert-like conditions. Does anyone have comments, questions, or clarifications? Philip? Yeah, it's not only desert-like things. It can also be like in Germany. We're not in the desert, but because it's north-south stream over here but i also want to emphasize that those wind systems can also work vice versa in the other direction too the same way but it may differ in intensity because of moisture levels on the one side of the mountain range and on the other side what do you mean by going in the other direction you so, probably um, know more than i do on that one yeah um no we have the fern uh the fern situation over here we have the east and west mountain range of the alps and then we have a typical fern thing. That's one of those wind situations that you were mentioning. So you have the air rising up with moisture coming from the Mediterranean area going over the mountains. And there you can see those wall of clouds coming towards the north. And then as the air goes down again, dry catabatic, you have really nice weather in the north. So that's like 80% of the time you have that 
suddenly burn situation. But it can also go the other way around because it's always about pressure system. It's always from high to low pressure. And because the mountain range is from west to east, it's not like in the US. Over here, it's a bigger kind of barrier in terms of pressure systems than east and west because of how the weather system works. And not only the, the weather system is divided by it, it's also nature is also divided a lot during history. And therefore, because of our east and westerly mountain ranges, we don't have that much of a variety nature-wise too. Oh, very interesting. So the fern, and I probably said that wrong, is one of the most famous winds of this example. There's another one called the Chinook, and there are a whole bunch of them all over the world. I had a friend from Switzerland try to teach me how to say fun, and I still probably don't say it correctly, do I? Oh, the first try was perfect. Oh, wow, fun. Okay, I'd better stop while I'm ahead. He actually had really interesting stories about flying around the mountains in Switzerland. He already had a license in the United States, and then he went there to get his license, and he said it was much more difficult to get the license because they had to memorize and learn about the different airflows in the different peaks and valleys in the Swiss Alps, because some of them can be quite dangerous and others can be very good to fly in. And when you're flying in mountains, you have to learn the local knowledge. You can't just assume that you know where the weather patterns are going, especially as it changes from season to season. Yeah, I also have a lot of intel on that, Teresa. I did also part of my training in the Alps. And even for experienced pilots, it's still a dangerous situation there. And also, in terms of turbulence on the lee side, where you have those warm descending winds, you always have those mountain waves that come over the mountains. They meander also in altitude. And then you sometimes have those lenticularis clouds, which are looking like lenses. And below those lenses, you have to expect strong turbulence. And sometimes those turbulent air can be right at your flight level where you're cruising into a valley or out of a valley in, in the Alps. And it can really bump you around. Sometimes your head ends up on the roof of, of your cabin. And it's also really important in those areas to have always a plan B to turn back towards safety. You have like three-dimensional winds. You can even fly with VX and you would sink because you have such a strong wind coming over a mountain that just presses you down to earth. And unfortunately, there are some situations where you could fly like perfectly, but the wind just puts you down back to earth and sometimes people crash. Unfortunately, that happens. And I just did that during my pilot training, but I have so much respect that even as an experienced pilot, I would have just pure fear of flying into the mountains again alone without any guidance because it's really, really dangerous. And I think you made a really good point, which is anytime someone is flying in the mountains, they have to understand that there are going to be local variations. So you can't say, I learned how to fly in one set of mountains, so now I know how to fly in all the mountains in the world. If you are flying close, loaded mountains, you need local training and local knowledge, and that is really important. There are a lot of different techniques. That takes care of the rain shadow effect, and that also takes care of a lot of winds that have specific names. As we've talked about, 
different types of winds. We are going to take any final comments on wind, and then we're going to go ahead and wrap that up, and then we'll talk about weather patterns. Any final comments on wind? Okay, we're going to wrap up wind. This is Captain Teresa. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you were one of the people being recorded, I thank you. If you were one of the people that we edited out of this recording, I beg your forgiveness. There were many reasons that this episode may have been edited, including length, audio quality, and accuracy. We don't always have the right answers. I ask you to view this as entertainment and not as a replacement for formal instruction or advice. If you want to send constructive feedback or if you have questions, feel free to contact us through our website, landingswithaflare.com. You can view announcements on our Instagram account, Landings with a Flare. You can also join our live conversations on Clubhouse in the club pilot flight training. If you got value out of this podcast, please consider subscribing, sharing, and leaving us a positive review. Wherever you are in the world, we wish you happy landings.